That seems to be human nature, if you ask me, but I'm, uh, I'm only human, so I'm kind of speaking as an insider here. Uh, you'll have to see if this resonates with you. It seems kind of like from the earliest cries of mine, you know, to our later in life uh, debates over who gets the TV control, mine, <laughs> that we love to be in control. You know, from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, this controlling impulse, at least to me, totally makes sense. Why would you give up your food and your resources to the first person that says, can I have, oh, sure, give her, no, yeah. I mean, you're not going to live too long if you're giving away all your food and your water, your shelter to the first person that demands it, human or animal. And even today, when food and water, for us anyway, uh, is uh, abundant, this impulse to control has its upsides. Uh, For example, climate control. I lived in Texas uh, for about three years, uh, taking the summers off to come back to Canada because I can't hack the heat. Uh, and I also can't work in the States. But um, I was really, really thankful for climate control. And so on those days when, that are a blistering 90, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which I don't even know what it is in Celsius because it never gets that high here, uh, your, your car is like an oven. It's literally dangerous to get in your vehicle if you don't start it and just let the AC run for five minutes first. Maybe longer, depending on how, uh, how long it's been boxed up. Uh, and so I'm thankful for climate control. I'm thankful for climate control in the, um, the car that I currently have, which still isn't really, really new, but it has AC in it. And for a whole summer, I drove a vehicle that didn't. And so as I was commuting back and forth from where I was living to where uh, I was working, uh, it was piping hot. And I am very thankful for climate control. Quite frankly, I think it would do wonders for my relationship with my wife if we in our vehicle had dual climate controls. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's a blessing. It's kind of nice that we we can have that kind of control in our life. Uh, It's nice, I think, to have a day timer. Uh, I'm really thankful for this little device that I carry around on my hip. And those of you who aren't as nerdish as me, you can mock me all you want, but it works. Uh, I've got my calendar in there. I've got my to-do list in there. It's a pretty powerful tool compared to, you know, 10 years ago when I started with a, a pad of paper. Some of you probably still use that and will mock me when this crashes and you're like, oh, my pad of paper is still up and running. Um, but we got powerful tools. We, we can have more efficient planning of time. I was on this getting things done kick for those of you who are uh, David Allen fans. And if you're not, that's fine. He's a productivity guru. And so I was really hooked on kind of his system and... Um, And so you can get a whole lot more done in less time, supposedly, if you actually think it through. And and these tools let you do, I can take control of my schedule. I can control my time. I can control what I need to do and get it done so that um, life is a little less stressful. Not that it always works. Uh, My wife and I have a shared digital calendar. Uh, We don't even have to talk anymore. But she uses a paper calendar. (laughs) So we still have to talk. Um, so, you know, we have this control over our day timers. I mean, think about your career. We can, way before we ever enter the workforce, we can start thinking about, and your parents, if you're, if you're a teen, your parents have probably already, you know, started prompting you to say, you know, what kind of experience might you want to get? They've been paying attention to you as you've been growing up, uh, seeing what kind of things you're interested in, what kind of things you're gifted at. They've, they've engaged those conversations with you, I'm guessing. And so... We can start plotting what kind of education, what kind of experience is required to move on to the next stage, you know? And, and in an economy where jobs to support a family seem to be kind of increasingly scarce, increasingly difficult to come by, this kind of control strikes me as a wise move. Even within an established career, there's options to kind of optimize your quality of life. 
flex days and work from home and non-taxable bonuses or other perks or maybe more vacation time instead of getting a raise. We, we have options available to us, all these pieces of control that maybe uh, we can take to, to change our life, to control our life a little more. We can, with this in mind, get responsibly, sorry, let me flip that around, responsibly get married and have kids knowing that we'll have the resources to support them. Or think about medicine. Think about the control that medicine has enabled us. When we're sick, we can go to the local drugstore, track down a pill or a potion that will either cure our ills, speed up recovery, or at the very least, ease our pain. It wasn't too long ago when I had a tweaked something in my back. And uh, Advil was my best friend for a couple days while that sorted itself out. I can control my pain. (laughs) That's incredible. And quite frankly, as a near-blind bat without my glasses, I'm really, really thankful for medicine. We love to be in control. The trouble is, the trouble is our controlling impulses are corrupted by sin. It's the curse of living in a broken world, one in which we're descended from Adam, who was the first in a very long line of sinners, and of which we're certainly not the last. Sin, in Paul's letters especially, is not just an immoral act. We usually think sin and we tie it to a specific act, right? Something that we've done, something that we've thought, something that we've said, something that we've touched. It's a sin. But for Paul, sin is so much more than that. It's a, it's a cosmic corrupting force, it's, which is only reflected um, in immoral against God kind of acts. Perhaps the best example, at least in Romans, is Paul's wrestling with the law. Is the law, the Mosaic law, is it good or is it bad? And so we don't have to go too far behind. Oh, we can actually leave uh, that slide off. We'll get there a little bit later. Um, Is it good or bad? Just before our text in chapter 8 today, in chapter 7, Paul's wrestling with, is the law good or bad? And on the one hand, the law only inflamed Paul's passions and desires. He makes this, what seems like a ludicrous statement, when he says, I wouldn't even know what sin was if it wasn't for the law. And so it seems to be kind of a negative thing. But on the other hand, Paul declares that the law in chapter 7 and verse 12 is holy and righteous and good. His description then seems to be that the law, an external force, was corrupted by sin. He himself says he was deceived. I want you to take a look in chapter 8 of Romans, verses 5 through 8. He can. And by show of hands, how many of you need the lights on to read? At least three. So that's a quorum in my mind. (laughs) Chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on uh, what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Wow. Wow. I mean, Paul's not pulling any punches. When he says sinful nature here, it seems to be what Paul is saying is this. Every person apart from Christ is thoroughly in the grip of the power of sin. And this power extends to the person's faculties. It's a mindset. 
a total life direction that is innately hostile to God. All people, by nature derived from Adam, are incurably bent towards their own good rather than the good of others or of God. The various sins to which we're attracted, desire for riches, station in life, power, sexual pleasure, are but different symptoms of this same sickness, this idolatrous bent towards self-gratification. The person who's preoccupied with his or her own success in business at the expense of others and of God is just as much dominated by the flesh as the person who commits adultery. Both persons are manifesting in different ways their destructive, self-centered rebellion against God and his law, which can be overcome only by the power of God's spirit in Christ. We're totally corrupted by sin apart from Jesus. It's a pretty bleak picture and one that we can argue with, but you'll have to take that up with Paul or me another day. I'd rather you take it up with Paul. But he paints a pretty bleak picture. If you don't have Jesus, you're in rebellion to God, period. If you don't have Jesus, you are hostile to God, period. If you don't have Jesus, if the spirit is not living in you, there is nothing you can do to please God, period. I wouldn't call that a popular viewpoint today. You know, I, I take a look back at some of those things I mentioned earlier. Let's think about climate control. You know, I'm, I'm a human, and so I like to think, okay, so we've kind of mastered the, the local in the house and in the car kind of climate control, but what about the weather? Huh? Wouldn't you like a whole entire summer like we had the first two weeks of September? What if we could do that? And us city dwellers, if we could, we'd make it sunny all the time. And if it was me in control, it'd be probably 20 to 22 degrees Celsius maximum. Yeah, Mark, I'm looking at you. Maximum with a light breeze. Just enough to sway my hammock. But what would that do to the farmers and their crops if I had it my way? What would it do to the animals and their life cycle? What would it do to the Arctic ice if I had it my way? And so sin corrupts my desires around climate control. That self-centered bent. What about our daytimers and getting things done? You know, with the tools to plan out every minute of our life, we can literally pack our days to the absolute maximum without a millimeter to wiggle or deviate from course. I remember a uh, professor sharing a story one time. He, I can't remember what exactly space he, of life he was in, but he pushes himself pretty hard. He's a marathon runner, uh, I mean, brilliant intellectual, and he took up road biking. Um, like, you know, pedal bike, road bike, skinny wheels go really, really, really fast. And so he's trucking along on one of the main thoroughfares in Abilene, Texas, and he takes an off-ramp, and he's just booking it. I have no idea when he thought he was going to stop. And he hit a pebble, a very small little rock, and had what we call a speed wobble. And that totally shut down his desire for more speed. He was just cruising along until he hit that little wobble. We can pack our lives like that. We can even ignore the speed wobbles. You know, people and work and leisure, life itself becomes a checklist geared towards productivity. Do I have it in my schedule? Did I get it done today? The highest good, quite frankly, in an infinite, ever-expanding, never-contracting economy, wouldn't you say? Just keep producing and get more out of every minute because they're precious. 
How about career? Career counseling seems to encourage us to aim high. And then once we've settled on that, to aim even higher. Why would you be satisfied, quite frankly, with a $30,000 a year job if you could get fifty? And why would you settle for that if you could get a $75,000 a year job? And why would you settle for that when you know that there's someone downtown at least making double or triple or quadruple that? Why would you settle? Come on, really? Just get some more education, get some more experience, and get out there and get that job. You deserve it. Who cares what the expense is? You deserve more, don't you? And why not indulge your natural instinct of bitterness and cynicism and anger when you don't get what you deserve? Sin corrupts our career aspirations. Or in medicine, you know, it strikes me as amazing that we can choose pretty much any career that we want to have. We can choose any lifestyle we want. And there's medicine to offset the negative effects. We can eat what we want. I can couch potato And literally, like, eat potatoes to become the potato. And there's a pill for that to deal with my cholesterol and high blood pressure later. You know, we can drink alcohol to our heart's content and borrow somebody else's liver when they pass on. But I remember down in Texas when I was ministering in a small congregation there, we had a little boy that was related to one of the families. He was about two years old. It was the hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life. Um, I was going to look at him in a casket. He hadn't died yet when I first started working with this church. And he needed a heart. His heart was just broken. Um, didn't work right from day one. And so as a church, we prayed week after week after week. And surely they prayed all the days that I wasn't there that this little boy would get the heart transplant that he needed. And a wise farmer comes up to me one day after Bible class. and He says, you know, Michael, I really struggle with this. Because for me to pray, little Mason gets a heart, is to pray that somebody else's boy or girl has to die. It's a hard place to be, isn't it? It's a hard place to be. And so without these little speed wobbles and these reflective pauses, it's hard for us to recognize the full impact of sin corrupting us and having us bent towards that self-centered, self-serving nature we find ourselves when we pause kind of caught up in this well put together looks fine and on the up and up on the outside but on the inside we're corrupted by sin we're corrupted by sin our controlling impulses even our well-intentioned ones are corrupted by sin but we can't end on the bad news can we buck up folks What a relief that Paul reminds us that for the believer, the spirit and not the self is what defines us. (laughs) Amen? More forcefully than that, amen? All right, I'll let that pass. This is good news. This is good news. My self-bent, sinning self is not the final word. Woo! (laughs) My family is thankful for that. My community is thankful for that. And at last, at last, finally, it's not my sinful self that's in rebellion to God. It's the spirit-filled self that is occasionally obedient to God. It's a long journey. We'll get there. But the sin which corrupts doesn't get the last word. It's the spirit that does. Take a look in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11. This is exciting news. Listen to this, church. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, 
not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who lives in you. That is good news. The Spirit who is life lives in you. The Spirit who is a promise from God to you lives in you. The Spirit who is God's, if you want to grab onto some financial biblical language, is the deposit or contractual angle, the language. He's the guarantor of God who lives in you. The Spirit who is our comforter in times of loneliness. The Spirit who is our advocate in times of weakness. The Spirit who is our helper in times of trouble. The Spirit who is our confidence in times of doubt. The Spirit who is our assurance when the evil one accuses us. The Spirit who empowers us, who encourages us, who entangles us in life. What a breath of fresh air the Spirit is. And Paul says, you are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. I was baptized about 20 years ago. I remember clearly being dressed in a funky purple outfit, which I loved. Fashion was never a strong suit for me. Probably couldn't tell that. Uh, And coming up out of that water, I remember feeling free. Uh, The only words I could possibly use to describe it were those of the genie from Aladdin. Sorry for borrowing from a secular movie. And does it ever feel good to be out of there? (laughs) If you haven't seen the movie, go see it, and then you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, For those of you who have been baptized, you probably know this feeling, and you probably know it doesn't last that long. Because that sinful self that was supposed to die in those waters, it was drowned there, it was buried there, it was left behind, is clinging on to my ankles when I walk up the steps. And yes, the Spirit is in me, but that old self that cosmic corrupting sin still hangs on to my body. And I find myself, if not that afternoon, then certainly within the week in rebellion to God or my parents, which is kind of like rebellion to God if you read Paul in Ephesians. In a lot of ways, you know, this experience reminds me of marriage. It's like one minute you're single, then you say, I do. And in that instant, you become a husband or wife. And you've got no clue what it means to be a husband or wife. And you spend the rest of your life fumbling along, figuring out, what does it mean to be a husband or wife? I said, I do. So I guess I am. So I better live it. And you figure it out for the rest of your life. You say yes to the Spirit, and you fumble along, figuring out what it means. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of 18. One day you're a child. Sorry, teenagers, I'm calling you a child. Don't take it personally. The next day you're an adult. Legally, one day you're bound to the direction and the control of your parents or your legal guardian, and the next you're free to make all of your own choices. And you spend the rest of your life fumbling around trying to figure out what in the world it means to be an adult. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of becoming a Christian. One day I'm rebellious and hostile to God, sinful and corrupted by sin, unable, unable to please God. That's a little insulting to me because I thought I followed Jesus for a long time before I actually gave him my life. 
but without the Spirit, I am unable to please God. And the next day, I rise from the waters of baptism, cleansed, dead with Jesus, and raised again to new life, filled with the Spirit. And filled with the Spirit, I fumble along still, and you probably know this experience. You fumble along still, trying to figure out what it means to live day by day in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to be lived in by the Spirit. One author puts it this way. I think it's brilliant. And if you miss this, you miss my whole sermon. For Paul, the sine qua non, I'm not a Latin guy, so sorry if I butchered that, but the foundational truth, I'll put it that way, of Christian existence is the Holy Spirit. We've tried to put it a lot of other places, and it is not. If we read Paul with a fair eye to everything he says, the baseline experience of the Christian believer is, is the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit which sets the captive free and gives life, inspires prayer, prophecy, tongues, and a host of other things, the author says. There is no such thing as a Christian without the presence of the Spirit in his or her life. doesn't exist. Read the text again. Chapter 8 and verse 9 makes it eminently clear. No Spirit, no Christian. Paul doesn't mince words. He doesn't have an issue with political correctness. The Spirit does not merely convey the, sorry, the good news in us. The Spirit actually enacts that news in the believer. And that's precisely what God is interested in. The gospel, the kingdom, entering into humanity and breaking forth in beautiful ways. It is a blessing that the Spirit resides in us. Literally, we are the Spirit's house. The same word, reside, residence. This is where the Spirit is. And so I think that we need to pay attention to what business the Spirit's into. To figure out what it is that the Spirit is up to. Uh, Take a look at Romans chapter 8 verse 10 again. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. I'm going to take a minor exception. hate it when preachers do this, but I got to do it here. I take exception with the way this verse is translated because the word your in both the first and second halves of the verse aren't there. It's been supplied by a translator. And so if we're to read this really woodenly, as the New Revised Standard Version translates it, it would say this, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Let me unpack that just a little bit. For Paul, the language of body and flesh uh, is more than body and flesh. It refers to the whole existence that we have in this world. It's the sinful world that is corrupted by sin that can't please god it's it's a whole age it's a whole realm if you want to think of it that way and it's set in contrast to the spirit and it's set in contrast to christ it's set in contrast to god's kingdom and the two are not uh compatible but the two overlap and so paul here i think is saying this though the body is dead You and I both know Christians die. We die of not natural and not so natural causes. It happens in the world. There are people, there are Christians who starve somewhere in the world. That shouldn't happen. There are people who are shot and they die and they were Christians. That happens. We die. Our our bodies die. That is the age that we live in. But when we say yes to Jesus in faith, we enter that realm of the kingdom of the spirit of Jesus reign and that's where it says the spirit 
is life because of righteousness. Because if it wasn't for God's righteousness, God being faithful to what God said he would do, the spirit wouldn't be in us. It's a great gift, but we don't get it by ourselves, do we? If I were to ask you, how do you know the spirit's in you? Would you turn to the number of hours that you've prayed in the past week? The number of verses in scripture that you've memorized? How many dollars you've given to the church or services you've attended? Are, are those the marks of the spirit? I, I don't think we can do that. Those might be things that spirit-filled people do, but we would have to come back to here. We'd have to go back to the cross. This is where the spirit gets into us. The spirit is life because of righteousness, because God did what he said he would do, which is save us from sin. And so because of that, the spirit is in us. So we need to pay attention to what business the spirit is into. This fellow named Hank, I'll call him Hank. He's a generic Hank. Um, Hank had grown up in the church, okay, as a little boy, had given himself to Jesus way later in life, still a faithful member of the church. Uh, but he's kind of one of those grouchy guys, you know. And one day an elder walked up to him and said, Hank, are you happy? And Hank, straight face, said, yes. The elder replied, tell your face. I like elders with little cheek. But here's the thing. Hank was not changing. Hank had said yes to Jesus, and Hank did not change. He found it difficult to be loving with his wife. His kids couldn't speak openly with him. He had a poor relationship with anybody, like everybody knew Hank, but nobody knew Hank. He didn't care much about the poor or those outside the church. Tended to be pretty harsh with those inside the church. Hank wasn't changing. But that's not the most surprising thing. The most surprising thing is that no one really expected Hank to change. And so nobody in the church was surprised when it didn't happen. Here's a man filled with the Spirit of God, the life-giving, advocate, helping, encouraging Spirit of God. He wasn't changing, but nobody thought that was unusual or weird or strange. They had lots of other expectations, like he'd be present, that he would show up at services and give money and be engaged at something around the church. But it didn't matter to them. It didn't surprise them that he didn't change. And I think that has got to be the saddest story that we could possibly hear in a church. So here's what I think we need to do. I hope that I've made eminently clear, and I hope that you've seen clearly, even more importantly in the scriptures, that the spirit is what defines a Christian. You don't have the spirit, then you don't have Christ. And so our job then, going forward from here, is how do we pay attention to the spirit? And I think of people in some various areas of life. Um, I took this one from a book somewhere, so please, I'm not a wine connoisseur, but... I've met people who apparently can like just smell wine and they'll tell you exactly where it came from, what kind it is, and roughly what year, or maybe exactly what year. And that's so far outside my experience. This stuff's gross to me. But for them to get that point, if, they, if you're a wine connoisseur, then you, you probably get some of that. But it takes years 
of paying really close attention and really honing your senses, doesn't it? To figure out, to really know the wine. Uh, let me shift to another one. How about art appreciation? Another one that I'm not very good at. I'm slowly learning to develop my aesthetic senses. Um, it'll probably never translate into my wardrobe, but things like this, I actually find really intriguing now. There was a day when I would have been like, eh, looks like a blue screen to me. But there's a lot going on up there. There's a lot of symbolism going on there that you can learn to appreciate if you slow down and pay attention. And so I, I'd like to draw the parallel to the spirit. If we pay attention to the spirit, I think we can learn to discern the spirit and say yes to the spirit in increasing measure, measure even as our bodies are going to waste away. You're going to die someday. But that's not the final word because the spirit who is life lives in you. And if we were to read just a little bit further, Paul would make clear this is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Lives in you. <laughs> I think that's awesome. So... Here's the kind of things that you typically hear around a church. And the reason you typically hear them around a church, just as you would typically hear things around an art studio, or you'd hear certain things around a wine tasting, this is what you do to tune into the spirit. You pray. It doesn't matter where you're at. The words will be clumsy, and that's fine. The words might be finessed, and that's also fine. What's uh, important is that you pray. Is you actually give your mind to God. I think it's really cool that neuroscientists actually find that our brains light up in different kinds of ways and people that pray regularly have different patterns in their brain when they pray. There is something that happens to us when we pray that helps us tune in to God and tune into what he's doing. And so we've got to make prayer part of our corporate life and we've got to make it part of our private life. And we've got to read our Bibles. We've got to keep reading our Bibles. I know sometimes the Bible has on occasion become a bit of an idol for us and we've loved it more than Jesus and we've loved it more than people and we've loved the way that we read it more than we love those around us who read it differently. I understand that, but we can't throw that out. We've got to keep reading the Bible because it's here that we hear really encouraging things like you are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the Spirit. And that's good news. We're going to take just a couple minutes here to uh, spend some time in journaling. Uh, we'll leave the lights on, but Orrin, if you can flip to the next page, that'd be great. Come on up, Richie. Um, Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sins, the spirit is life because of righteousness. I really hope you find that to be good news today. And I invite you, if you have your journals, to pull them out. And if not, spend some time praying. Get started. Uh, and tuning into the spirit on a continuum of kind of letter of the law and let go and let God. I think those are two uh, ways that we've often described living in the spirit. On the one hand, the spirit just empowers us to fulfill the letter of the law, uh, sometimes called legalism. And on the other hand, it's uh, just a maybe you've heard a let go and let God and both sides drive me bonkers, by the way. But it's a continuum. It's supposed to invite you into, to reflect a little bit. Where, where would be your response to the spirit? Where, where do you find yourself? Where would you like it to be? Maybe better, where would God like it to be? So I invite you into that reflection. And the second one, uh, if you want to spend some time there, what do you feel knowing that it is the Spirit that resides in you?